0: Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. As you know, we're a show that reports, rebels, and we tell it just like it is. On our show, we examine the past as we think about the future, and that's exactly what we're bringing to you in this episode for Black History Month and the others that will follow. In this episode, we're wondering why are people burning books? Why are books by some of our most prominent authors being banned Why is it that the AP African-American studies courses received so much attention? Is that because there are authors that are now being blacklisted, materials that children are being denied learning? And then what does this mean for our nation when we can no longer hold up a mirror to ourselves and with some level of objectivity examine the past? colonialism, a past of Jim Crow, of American slavery, of women's suffrage, of indigenous people in the Trail of Tears. Why is it that in 2023 there is so much American fragility and censorship? And what does this mean about protecting important constitutional rights, such as free speech and the First Amendment? How does that fit into matters of state-sponsored censorship of materials. Helping me to unpack these issues and so much more As someone who's been blacklisted himself, whose materials have been yanked from the African-American AP Studies course, and that's Professor Roderick Ferguson. He's the William Robertson Co. Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Yale University, where he is also a professor of American Studies. I'm so pleased that he's actually able to join me right in this moment to talk about the urgency of our American history. Sit back and take a listen. It's such a pleasure and a real privilege to be with you, um, Rod. And first name base is okay because we go way back, right? Exactly. And, you know, when I saw your name on the list of professors whose works would be removed from the African-American AP studies course, I texted you. I was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was so surprised by that. So I, I wanted to talk with you about just what this represents in our country right now, not just your incredible rigorous body of work um, being extracted and moved away from the AP American studies just represents something broader in terms of the kind of censorship that is beginning to take place about matters that relate to Black Americans, Indigenous Americans. Everybody. Uh, Everybody. Let's start with, were you surprised when your name appeared on the list? Yeah, you
1: know, I was surprised. First of all, it's great to see you and great to be on the show. Um, I was surprised. Because it was just unexpected. I mean, the college board was not on my radar, you know? Um, I had received the emails requesting me to come and look at the college board curricula. Um, You know, emails of, we want your input. I had ignored all of them. They kept coming. And then... You know, one Saturday, I'm opening up my email and a reporter says, uh, you have just been listed as one of the scholars who will be removed um, uh, from the course. And, you know, there's a tweet going out by the Florida Department of Education. So I was not surprised given the context, but I was surprised because it just, you know, um, I was not close to it at all, right? Um, you know, I think what it represents, you know, and I talked a bit about this in the op-ed that I wrote, is that, um, you know, it really represents a kind of crackdown on critical thinking, critical pedagogy, but also interdisciplinary work around the intersections of race, sexuality, gender, um, you know critiques of discrimination critiques of labor exploitation so even though it is targeted at african-american studies it pertains to all of us you know um like all the work that you know folks do within the humanities the social sciences law schools um you know, environmental schools, uh, all of us are vulnerable. All the work that we do is vulnerable um, because of attacks like this.
0: Mm -hmm. As if African-American studies becomes a smokescreen for the removal of so much more. It seems somewhat nativist.
1: Oh, completely. I think it's it's nativist. It's... You know, it's an aggressive uh, nationalism. You know, it is, it's everything. It's racism, it's uh, misogyny. Uh, I mean, if you look at the original tweet from the Department of Education, you know, Angela Davis is ineligible because she's a Marxist. Bell Hooks is ineligible because she wrote, quote, many books on intersectionality. You know, so uh, I'm ineligible because of the work that I have done, you know, in queer studies and the critiques that I have made of state violence and um, corporate violence. Right. Um, So it's all of that. It's the nativism. It's the. Noir, it's you know the homophobia it's the transphobia you know it's all of it
0: mm-hmm. and, you know i'm wondering what this ends up leading to because in 2023 we see this erasure taking place with materials that were in place um 10 15 um you know, years ago, at least in terms of what were in libraries at public schools. It doesn't mean that the students were necessarily picking the books up off the shelves, you know, but there were books that were there. And, you know, you know, recent attention can be on Florida and, you know, AP African American Studies. But we know that for the last two years, there's been a movement afoot framed as let's remove critical race theory from schools. But really, it's been a matter of an erasure of American history and you know, American history,
1: v- American yes. literature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, one of the the most banned writers is actually Toni Morrison,
0: which is stunning. She's won a Nobel Prize in literature. She won a Nobel Prize,
1: but uh, she is, according to the American Library Association, two things: she is one of the most banned authors, and twenty twenty two was a year of possibly the greatest bans on books you know in school systems right um so even though they use the category critical race theory they're not using it you know in the way that we would right you know to sort of mean a particular formation coming out of law schools it could be novels you know
0: well, right. Well, that's something that's actually surprising about all of this for a number of reasons, which is one, that critical race theory is is a theory. It's a theory that may get taught every year at some law schools. It may be yeah. that it's not even taught at law schools. It yeah. may be that the professor yeah. who teaches critical race theory usually has other classes to teach. And so maybe once every two or three years actually yeah. teaches it. It's something that not every student desires to take, and it's alongside law and economics as yeah, a theory exactly. of how and to think about high like, school. Right. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, I mean, there were so many theories, uh, different approaches to thinking about the methods of law. Very recently, there's been a lot of talk about originalism, right? Yeah, uh, but yeah. it is very interesting how it is this, which becomes basically the kind of scapegoat. Oh, totally. Um, totally, totally, totally yeah. Totally. And the th- sort you, of you know, proxy for totally, getting you, at... <laughs> Sort of the
1: denialism. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and to this point that, you know, when I looked at, you know, there was, um, what was it, Friday or Saturday, uh, the letter that the Department of Education in Florida sent to the College Board was released, right? You know, and in the letter, they have 19 topics that had been expunged, right? Right. And I looked at it and I was like, wait, queerness isn't even, queer theory, queer studies, not even in this letter, right? So it means that those topics, those authors, like myself, work that I do, we were taken out way before, okay? But we were resurrected. I was resurrected, you know, just for the purposes of demonization and homophobic scare.
0: You know, it reminds me in some ways, just this kind of journeying uh, about imagery and the stories that we tell in the United States, the stories that are prominent and the stories that get very little attention. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of thinking about um, the 1920s film, uh, Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, because there are choices with the stories that we tell. Yeah, totally there, right, yeah. there can be the choice of lifting up um, the book, The Klansman, which becomes basically Probably. the film Birth of a Nation and oh, right, right. something that's shown in the White House, mm-hmm. uh, the NAACP protests. In the wake of it, we see the rise of the Klan and the burning down of black communities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then there are the stories that don't get told, right? So um, the stories of abolition mm-hmm. don't get told. Mm-hmm. Um, young people learn the stories of confederates kind of rebranded mm-hmm. as courageous people, as mm-hmm. people who cared about home and, and country mm-hmm. and just were mm-hmm. simply on the other side of the line. But what's mm-hmm. not included in that are the stories about what slavery really represented, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. broad scale sexual mm-hmm. assault and rape yeah. of not just yeah. Black women, Black girls. Yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. You know, we don't hear about the story of Sally Hemings, who comes away from Paris with Thomas Jefferson pregnant at the age of 16 and goes there at 14, right? So the stories that are privileged and the stories that aren't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We don't hear, you know, for instance, about Reconstruction, that even the uh, many of the Southern historians and conservative historians at the time acknowledge that the school's American schools were at their best during the reconstruction period because newly freed Black people who then became politicians insisted on public education. <laughs> yes. You know, and so... Um,
0: Even that, me- right? Like that, that's just a little point right there. Yeah. That newly freed yeah. people who had been enslaved Oh, insisting yeah. on public education that, even that everybody, yes, even that. Even that. I mean, you know,
1: there's a fascinating chapter in Du Bois's Black Reconstruction on the public school system where he says that um, white wealthy people, uh, when thinking about the question of public education, dismissed it because they said, why do we need public education? We're wealthy. We have property, right? White working class people dismissed it because they said, Why do we need public education? We just want property. It was actually the newly freed Black people who said, no, 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 we actually need both. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you know, we're having a conversation that uh, would be the kind of conversation possibly banned, right? Because we're talking about matters of history that are sought to be, you know, expunged, as as you say. But um, even when one thinks about the passion behind the desire for public education, this is coming from people who would otherwise be criminally and civilly punished if they dared learn how to read. They're learning how to write, you know, had to keep it secret when they did know how to read and write or even the ability to be able to count. You had to be kind of uh, deemed a carve out where it had to be justified that the people that you worked for were able to allow you to be able to count and use numbers because, you know, all of this, you know, embedded in law. So, yes, these people would certainly see the value of education.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting too, because uh, related to this moment, you know, one of the lines that I took out of the op-ed had to, it was a line about racism being necessarily innumerate. You know, it doesn't know how to count, right? Because all of this is over a population among the American professoriate that is made up of 6% of the faculty. Black people are only 6% of the faculty in the US.
0: You know, how many of us have been the first ones in our department, you know, the, exactly right. the right like the in in these days and times, right? I was um doing a um a an event for the American Constitution Society in the aftermath of George Floyd's brutal murder. And it was a session about elevating black lives. And the first session was with professors, and one of them was Pat Williams,
1: Patricia mm-hmm. Williams,
0: mm-hmm. um, author of The Alchemy of Race and Rights. Mm-hmm. And she said something that I think just caused a bit of a, a pause and a and a chill. And we had hundreds of people who were watching this from all across the country. But she mentioned how at the time in which she began her law teaching career, there were five women of color in the United States who are law professors.
1: Yeah, I can believe it. You know, I
0: mean, right. I mean, that is just really stunning.
1: Five. Yeah, well, this is the thing, right? It's sort of like, and then then imagine that a national hysteria is organized around those five women. (laughs) Well,
0: you know, well, well, right. And and fortunately, they mentored others and helped to bring other people in. But, But you are right, that foundation, right? I mean, it means that it is hard to find at American law schools, even in these times, what one could say would be a critical mass of people of color, um, <laughs> certainly not of, of black people. And you know the figure that you just shared, that 6%, if you are a person of color, a black person, you very well know that 6% and at your yeah. institution, I mean, it, it yeah, exactly may right. percentage yeah. wise be much lower. It's a very, very small Group, you know, it's a very small group that has tried to help um, provide an avenue for understanding what this history. Uh, represents in our country. And it reminds me, um, Rod, that 25 years ago, actually, in the wake of Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, and others writing in that frame of critical race theory, the very public attacks, right? So it's interesting that within the context of the um co- colleges and law schools, what's now pretty stable, critical race theory, their courses being offered, though not everywhere in every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. But 25 years ago, when there were scholars that were looking to excavate American history and law and say, well, let's look at law from a different lens, the public attacks that were published um, in prominent news and magazines about how these scholars should be grateful <laughs> That oh, yeah. they had law teaching jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, And that they yeah. were just whiners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you
1: know, it's kind of the anti-intellectualism, systematic and organized, has always been interesting to me, right? Because I remember seeing Derek Bell give a public address actually at Metropolitan Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., which was famous for also you know, um, you know uh, the black intellectuals that came through and were invited to speak there. And I remember going one evening, weekday evening, to hear him speak, right? Now, here's a figure who, in another context, in another sort of uh, racial identity, would be lauded for promoting an epistemic shift, you know, in the field of law. Okay, you know, this is where
0: we say break it down. Exactly, right? This sort of innovation. Exactly, yes.
1: Yeah, but became vilified, you know, for the work that he was doing. You know, my first course here at Yale was a Black Feminist Theory course. um, And I, you know, had imagined, okay, I'll just teach, you know, 15 students at the most. It'll be an undergraduate seminar. And then 35 students showed up to a room that was only fit for 20, okay? Um, Because that was the demand from the student body, you know, for a course like that. One of the texts that I taught, the whole text was actually the Alchemy of Race and Rights. That would not be a text that could be taught, you know, um, if DeSantis and the right wing had their way. So all of the sort of intellectual production the epistemic innovations that people have made for all of us all of us you know those things would not be on the syllabi anymore
0: well you know what i have on my desk right now because of a piece that i'm currently finishing for one of the yale law journals is um a tribute of william ellery channing to the American abolitionists for their vindication of freedom of speech. So it's interesting about Mm. this particular speech that he wrote um, helps to illuminate much about the conversation we're having and the Mm. conversation that's going to be Mm. taking place across the country because he is very sympathetic, as he expresses in this, uh, their work to end slavery. But what he's stunned by is how in the vilification of the abolitionist, mm-hmm. there is the attack itself on the First Amendment.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And he writes about that and he talks about, he, he uses the word violence and it was true, the mm-hmm. violence that was inflicted on uh, abolitionists. Um, and he calls it deliberate systematic efforts uh, that have been made far and wide by those who are anti abolitionist to basically undermine speech and the press that which should or one thinks is protected by national and state governments and, yeah. and i couldn't help. i think you know this is a speech that is written in 1861. yeah and here it is we are in 2023 yeah
1: it's an old playbook it's an old playbook and as I said to you know someone recently okay when do you go after literature and speech via legal means you go after liter- literature and speech through the law when you realize that you have lost ideologically you know when there have been advances that you can see you know um with respect to the black lives matter movement it was clear that many of those folks had been reading
0: <laughs> reading makes a person dangerous it's it makes a person right,
1: dangerous right this, because exactly, yeah. this was frederick douglas's point <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. It makes
1: a person dangerous.
0: Well, because, of course, when one reads, then one understands a certain kind of nuance. So in thinking about the conversation that we're having and Thinking about where our Supreme Court is and what was probably the most shocking decision opinion that came out of the court last year for Mm -hmm. so many people who didn't see it coming Mm -hmm. uh, was the Dobbs decision, uh, Mm -hmm. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Mm -hmm. Organization, which overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. There are some of us that had been ringing a bell for a while, dating back to the time when we were both at the University of Minnesota, I was writing about these uh, kinds of things. But what's what's interesting here is that as the court talks about the importance of originalism, right? Let's mm-hmm. let's you mm-hmm. know think about what the ratifiers said. You know, the mm-hmm. people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments. It seems to me that the court doesn't even engage with what the Reconstruction ratifiers yeah. actually thought about. These were yeah. abolitionists. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, this is the thing, right? That um, you know, I mean, this is the part of. American intellectual history and Black studies that I find really, really inspiring. It was asking us to be better readers. <laughs> I <put something> right. <laughs> you know, like all that work that Toni Morrison did as an editor, where she's trying to build a Black reading audience around Black texts, right? All the research that she did to write books like Beloved. Much of which comes from the books that she put together, especially the black book, you know, that book of that scrapbook. Powerful um, book. She, powerful She drew on that work to write. You know, so and, in, and she drew in, upon
0: uh, real life, right? Even exactly. thinking about beloved, it's exactly. the story of Margaret Garner. Exactly. Margaret Garner, right, yeah. who escapes from Kentucky. And with what can only be true grit and determination, decide yeah. she is going to walk across, yeah, the Ohio yeah. River exactly. to get to freedom. Right. And she's right. going to do that with some kids in tow with some kids in tow with, right. with some kids in tow she's going to walk. And it's I, you know, think about it, right? Of course, it's, she has no bus, there's no train. She is an right. enslaved woman who's about right. to become right. a fugitive right. slave, right. Right, 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 right? by the right. terminology of the time. Right. And uh, and and with no ugs, right? No <laughs> like, shoes. That's no, right? Exactly. She is doing this, right? And and what do we learn if we actually learn her story? What exactly. can we learn about our history? Exactly. I mean, you know, and I
1: remember reading Toni Morrison's *Playing in the Dark*, and there was a line that stuck out to me. This is my junior year in college, and she says, "Before I was a writer, I was a reader." <laughs> you know, and also to your point, that reading, it promotes awareness. And if there's awareness, there might be accountability. And that's what I really think that these folks are after, you know, the right wing. They yeah, don't it's... want, you know, accountable subjects to emerge.
0: Well, you know, what's being articulated in the space of this is a kind of fear about children not being emotionally capable of digesting um this history which is of course a bit ironic considering what people leave their children to digest all the time right and this kind video of video games you <laughs> right? know exactly but that they can't digest this but you know i think about you know with these doors open just what it is that we might learn from those archives you know recently i've been I have been doing for for recent years um a really deep dive into the reconstruction archives thirteenth oh, nice. amendment and nice. um and recently I've been looking at the advertisements from the 1700s, 1600s, um, oh, wow. seventeen hundred sixteen hundreds um 1800s sort of like mostly um of advertising either the selling of enslaved black women or advertising for the return of enslaved black women and here's one from 1793 that was published mm. in the virginia chronicle for sale or exchange a young healthy negro winch and child tis not convenient to have a breeding winch in the family hmm now isn't that interesting right to sort of pause on that there's so mm. much so she's young and she's healthy how old was this child
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm who has a child right and then who's placing this ad saying okay it's been too long that she's in this house <laughs> yeah right? exactly like what's the inconvenience <laughs> well right well i'm thinking that this might be placed by a woman of the house who's yeah just- yeah 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 right? yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah and it's
0: just there's just so much power behind just looking into these archives to be able to understand the American story. Well, you know, you're touching on a point that
1: uh, is germane for the um, AP revision, because what they've said is that they want to just focus on or focus primarily on the primary materials without the secondary uh, resources, right? But at what point does it become, does it slip from primary to secondary, right? Because it's primary... Once you're talking about the ad, but the conversation that we're having draws on secondary literatures, you know, like.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it would seem to me that of these primaries, right, because you, you can't leave them out in the abstract and they have so much weight. Here's just an, another one from 1799. Um, and this one is about, it's captioned as ran away. And the person who's placed this ad says a Negro wench named Margaret has a mulatta child Mm. and it, and is at this time pregnant. Then it describes where Margaret was last seen, but it has a closing note that says, if she returns of her own accord, she will be forgiven. And again, what's Margaret's story? So Margaret is pregnant. Margaret yeah, already yeah, has yeah. a mulatto child. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, what yeah, is yeah. the texture of this, and who placed this ad? Where this yeah. person wants Margaret to know, all yeah. oh, we'll will be forgiven if you come back yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. And which primary, primary documents will they let you know see the light of a classroom? Right, because there's one primary document. Um, I have a book since I'm from Georgia, I have a book of um, you know the sort of oral histories of formerly enslaved folks uh, in Georgia, right? That the WPA put out. And there's a story that this uh, former enslaved black woman tells about her sister and how her sister as a little girl was sold away to this man. And her job was to lie on the table as she was being raped right and then the sister died as a little girl okay and then i was talking to a friend of mine who is a slavery historian she says you know there aren't many stories like that because uh you know people just didn't want to disclose that kind of trauma right so that's a unique story in and of itself, but a unique story that is uh typical of what was going on, right? Would that kind of story make it into the classroom? <laughs> because you know, there's no way you can't um then bring a critique of the slave system as a system of rampant sexual exploitation and violence into that, which is also what the um you know, DeSantis and Ilk don't want you to talk about.
0: And yet it seems to be such an important aspect um, to really fully capture, if one wants to honestly capture that history, because as you say, it was such a rampant aspect of it, such that the leading argument being made by the abolitionist. And this makes sense. The leading arguments that they were making was about those predations, about the sexual assault and abuse of black women and girls. Um, That yes, picking cotton um, and being uncompensated for for it and cutting the sugar cane uh, was certainly coercive, corrosive, abusive, all of that. But the power Mm -hmm. behind the movement that they were leading was to be able to tell these kinds of stories. So, all right. A couple of other questions that I want to ask before I, I let you go, and i it's been such a wonderful conversation, this is like gone by way too quickly, but <laughs> the AP classes are, basically the idea behind them is that someone is prepared enough to be able to take a class that would be the equivalent of a college class. So I'm wondering how we understand that, because this isn't just high school, which, you know, this is banning Toni Morrison from high school reading is itself such an incredible disservice. But when you think about AP African-American studies, the idea is that you are no longer within just the space of high school. This is elevated thinking. So how does one reconcile in that regard?
1: Well, you know, I think what it is, it's a comment also on what we do in the university, right? And also maybe a signal that the university is also next, right? That, um, you know, cause it's not just a, co- it's, it's an AP course. It, it you know, it requires the approval of university faculty to say that it even meets You know with the standards of university curricula right um you know so they're not going after the sort of bread you know the everyday um history course or english course you know it is the ap course the course that links the high school to the college right i think we would be uh uh fooling ourselves if we think that they are not going to follow that link, you know, uh, in their actions.
0: And you know, it's it's, what's also stunning about it, right? Because clearly, you know, as we've talked about, this is uh, has a certain kind of racial expedience. Because when I think about Tesla the Dubberfills, you know, you, you know, when I think about the work of the Brontes and whatnot, uh, you know, mm-hmm. these are loaded <laughs> with things, people being locked away in attics, you know, mm-hmm. rapes and sexual assaults, domestic violence, mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things. And there's no and there shouldn't be talk of removing Thomas Hardy from you know the, the school libraries, you know, yanking mm-hmm. the works of um, the Bronte sisters, you know, from the libraries and whatnot. So, So, Rod, what does this mean about American education? Ultimately, at the end of the day, when we see this kind of attack, one answer is that, yes, the universities watch out because, you know, perhaps legislatures, governors are coming for you next. What else should we learn from this moment?
1: Well, I mean, I think that what you learn from this moment is that, you know, this is a very fragile enterprise. Right? It's a very vulnerable enterprise. Um, We can't take anything for granted. We cannot take reading for granted. We cannot take writing for granted um, that those things have become part of of a very dangerous political theater, right? Um, The way I look at it is that in a sense, it's also confirmation that We're also getting it right. (laughs) You know, because again, you don't come after uh, writers, teachers, texts, unless they're doing something in the world. Right. And so for me, this is not a moment to retreat from the work. It is a moment to return, you know, to the work with even more vigor. Right. So, you know, how do we use this to shore up American education? Um, and also to make the case that, look, you know, the work that we do, the work around um, race, the work around gender, around feminism, the work that is critical of like the big entities of the state and capitalism, Um the histories of slavery and empire, these things are part of the public good, you know? They are part of the public good. So it can be a moment for us to revise our understanding of education as a public good. You know? And that part I find, you know, really necessary and inspiring.
0: You know, it's been such a pleasure spending this time with you on, you know, at the end of all of our episodes, we ask about a silver lining. I wonder if there is even one to add to what you've said, because that really that reframing as a public good and as not being something that's just owned by select groups. Right. Which is how I think exactly. that so much of history is understood. That's indigenous people in their history. That's Asian Americans. That's, you know, African Americans yeah, exactly. rather than this is part of us all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, you know, these are honors shared among us. You know, these are gifts shared among us, you know, and we should protect the gifts. You know, they have to be protected.
0: Hmm. Well, it has been such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the issues. Professor Rod Ferguson, thank you so much. guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to msmagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe as we do that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever it is that you receive your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at msmagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues at msmagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.